welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And uh, that David that you hear is a remote version of David Newman. He is officially in Pittsburgh, and he is not quite moved in. I can still actually see boxes behind him on FaceTime, but he is dialing in. I've got him here uh, via satellite um, because... (laughs) Everything is done via satellite. I mean, we might as well be on, like, HughesNet right now. Like, you've seen those commercials, right? Like, well, the what is a parents H- that are on there. What is like a the HughesNet? HughesNet's, like, the direct TV, like, satellite internet service. And you see the commercials all the time. And it's, like, grandparents that live out in the country. And they're like, now I can talk to my grandchildren. And that's basically the only people that have HughesNet. I legitimately don't know what you're talking about. You've never heard of HughesNet? I, I can't. You need to. I mean, there's no reason you should ever get it, but, you know, no. like, it's a thing. It I, exists. I, I entirely believe you. I really do. I mean, if I fall in and I can't get up is a thing, if the comfort wipe is a thing, if, <laughs> if the titty bear is a thing, that's T I D D Y. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about the titty bear. If the titty bear is a real <laughs> thing, then I believe HughesNet to be a thing as well. But this week, we actually do have some news. This is our first training camp edition of the Better Rivals podcast. We're not going to have a weekend without football until February. Granted, it's going to be really shitty football for the first month and some change. But it's still going to be football. And it's that time of year again. And I'm ready to get back on the proverbial horse. Yeah, I mean, I haven't been more excited with the, with all the Chip Kelly stuff and just seeing like how this offense is going to shake out and just all of the general unknown things about this team being so young. Like, I, I haven't been more excited for preseason in a long time. Yeah, so definitely we're going to have some things when we get into the season in terms of scheme, what we love to do, breaking the game down. But for training camp, we're going to open it up with a mailbag episode. We got your questions from Twitter and Facebook, and we're going to be answering them over the course of this week's show but first we're gonna get to the rundown brand new news stories we don't have to fill it with things that we don't want to talk about (laughs) we can actually talk about actual news that's happening uh i've got my my bullet rye here ready to go ready to kick it in to news gear first up anthony davis (laughs) returns to the team and he actually came back i didn't think it would happen it actually happened. He filed for reinstatement, and it's like, okay, is he actually going to come back to the Niners now? Like, yep. is, or is it what's going to happen there? And then he reported training camp. Yep. Uh, I got this news, like, driving to Pittsburgh on my way. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's great. Like, who knows what happens with it? But, I mean, I, I think it's definitely the, the ceiling for that right tackle position just went up significantly. Absolutely. Well, he did lose quite a bit of weight. I think he's lost somewhere in the range of about 30 pounds, 30 to 35 pounds which I think is actually going to be better for him in Chip Kelly's scheme. This is a scheme, of course, that asks its linemen to do a lot of really athletic things in terms of zone blocking, and it's really, really good for him. Even he himself said that he doesn't know how he played in the 365 to 370 range. Um, That's I think it speaks to his athleticism personally. It takes a a good athlete to move around that much weight well. And I think overall, this is an immediate upgrade to the right tackle position even if he doesn't come back to full 100% Anthony Davis form. Right. I mean, that's, that's the big thing is like, will he be the same player that he was when he left? I mean, who knows? Obviously there's, there's going to be an adjustment period there, especially, but I mean, it seems like reasonably safe to assume that he can't be any worse than what we had at that position last year. So 
when you're looking at other guys like Eric Pears and uh, Trent Brown and whoever else, you know, any of the rookies that they want to try to throw in there, like none of those guys really inspire a lot of confidence. So at least with Anthony Davis, like, will he be that same player? We don't know yet, but that again, that ceiling is significantly higher with him in the lineup potentially. So he's already making impressions. There are some training camp reports about him succeeding and having some, and having some success at the right tackle position. At this point, it seems like it's a competition between him and Trent Brown and in a competition between Anthony Davis and a seventh round pick, despite the fact that that seventh round pick is probably playing bigger than his draft position, you've still got to go Anthony Davis. Yeah, I mean, if if Davis doesn't win that battle, then obviously it wasn't much of a battle. Uh, you feel like like it's it's something there. Like they, maybe they are going to try to get rid of him, or there you know there's some other factor there that we can't really see or account for from the outside. So uh, it, it would just be kind of a massive upset. I feel like if if he doesn't end up winning that spot at this point, all the team can do is trust him and wel- welcome him back with open arms because having any kind of explicit distrust or making him earn his stripes in some kind of unnecessary fashion really helps no one. It doesn't help the team. It doesn't help Anthony Davis. It frays relationships. And so all you can yeah. do at this point is be like, you know what? Water under the bridge. Let's do it. And it sounds like that's what he did. He he patched things up with Joe Staley. They had their talk. Things are better. Now it's football time. Yeah, I mean, exactly. As long as he can go in there and, and kind of make things right in the locker room and people feel comfortable with it, then there's really you know nothing more to talk about there. So the next story in our rundown is that Ian Williams got some bad news this season. He will miss the entire 2016 season. The 49ers placed Williams, who hurt his ankle early in the offseason, on the reserve non-football injury list, meaning he won't play in 2016. So he uh, that, that means because he's on the NFI list that he did not hurt that ankle in spring practices or organized activities. He hurt his ankle doing something else, working out on his own, playing basketball. He tripped on some marbles, kicked a poodle. Who knows what he did? But it, it is not a football-related injury. Um, hey, you know what? You can hurt your ankle kicking a poodle. I mean, it's got to be a pretty big poodle. Poodles are big. Standard poodle is pretty big. You keep thinking of the little dogs. But a standard I mean, poodle is, that a, might pretty, be true. is yeah. a pretty large dog, not going to lie. Hey, but <laughs> I must say, we on the Better Rivals podcast do not advocate kicking poodles. <laughs> no, no, no they, way do we advocate that. They are, they are hypoallergenic fluffballs of joy. So please don't kick any <laughs> poodles. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, I think uh, on, on one hand, obviously, like, knowing that he's going to be out the entire season sucks. I mean, we've, we've talked about how well he played last year and especially how well he played at the tail end of last season and, and really kind of established himself as, as one of the best defenders, you know, on the team. So uh, it, it hurts that he's not going to be there. But on the other hand, you know, I, I guess if you had to have like a player at a, a specific position that was going to go down with a season and an injury, like, Having your nose tackle go down in today's game, you know, the, the impact's not going to be quite as severe as if it were somebody at a, at a more premier p- position. So I think we see, you know, the the run defense might take a little hit, especially when they are in, in kind of that base 3-4 defense. But this was a guy that, w- with the additions that they've made along the defensive line, you know, he, he probably wasn't going to play a ton in the sub-packages, like in your nickel and dime packages, uh, anyway, like I think he was, you know, versatile enough to get in there and, and kind of spell pl- spell guys and and take some snaps there if needed. But he certainly wasn't going to be a primary player in those packages. So I, I don't know that this necessarily 
moves the needle on the team's like final 2016 win total, right? So it, it sucks because he's a good player, but I don't know that it really changes the outlook for this season that much. Well, Ian Williams last season did have 51 stops in the run game, which was uh, about the same as Ndamukong Sue and six fewer than Aaron Donald. So while he isn't necessarily that level of a defensive tackle yet, it is still going to be something that's missed in the run game. Now, one yeah, absolutely. one person that I thought could step in, because obviously you think Glenn Dorsey, he's coming back from injury. Quinton Dial could slide into the nose and play. But I think someone who last season impressed me with limited play was Mike Purcell. This is a guy who played about the same number of snaps as Glenn Dorsey, um, uh, probably a game or so less. Um, but he still had 11 stops, which was the same amount as Glenn Dorsey. And, and this is a guy who is one of those small, powerful Tongans that we seem to have a run of uh, under Mike Nolan. And, and, and so this is a guy that I think could do well as that two-down nose tackle player. Again, someone who only plays 20% of the snaps at this point in the game, um, 20, 30 maybe. And, and so he could fill in. I think Glenn Dorsey coming back from injury can fill in. I think the most logical person is going to be Quentin Dial, who fits right into the nose. And then you've got the two bookend um, you know, giants on either end of him. Yeah, I, I think we see somewhat of a rotation, right? Whereas if Williams had stayed healthy for the entire season, I mean, he's pretty much going to be taking nearly every snap at nose tackle in that 3-4, right, when they go to that package. But now with him out of there, I think you're going to see a little bit more of a committee approach with probably Quentin Dial, you know, getting the the majority of those snaps. So, like, maybe he leads the way. But, yeah, I think you're going to see guys like Purcell get in there, somebody like Dorsey perhaps, um, and, and they're going to kind of, you know, rotate that in and out based on who they decide to, to line up at the ends on, on that particular drive or series or whatever. Incidentally, I don't think we got a question about this, so I feel fine mentioning it now. But one of the camp reports today from Matt Barrows, this is the fourth day of camp, second day with pads, with pads on. And they moved Armstead and Buckner to the inside on pass rushes. And Barrows said that that combination was difficult for the offensive line to handle. And that's, I mean, yeah, that's the that's the goal, right? That's what we're hoping for. Oh this man, entire time. how awesome would that be to just take these big defensive ends and kick them down inside and just be like, yeah, stop us now with this four person front, or even just you know a two four five, whatever you're going to run. You've got these two interior pass rushers that are legit pass rush specialists, and not only that, but we can get up and deflect some passes, like. Yeah, that's right. But like that's that's some versatility there on the defensive line that we can see. Yeah, I mean that that was the whole idea. We talked about this a lot, I think, you know, right after the draft when when Buckner was made the selection. Um, and it was that sort of versatility and and just the fact that you have those two massive dudes that are inside there that can get after the passer, like they have the versatility to even play outside and you know and get a decent pass rush when they're going up against tackles, but all of a sudden you put them inside and going against guards and centers and, and those players just don't have the athleticism to be able to match up with those guys in pass protection. So, um, you know, who knows if, if, you know, Buckner, you, you always expect a little bit with rookies to, to kind of be a little slow out the gate and, and have that adjustment period. You know, you don't want to assume too much from, from that rookie player, but, uh, again, we saw what Eric Armstead could do last year, and I think Buckner is a better player coming out of Oregon than, than Armstead was. So that combination on the inside is is going to be, you know, hopefully the strength of that defense for for quite a while. Well, even last year, uh, the in the pass rush, Eric Armstead had 14 hurries, 
uh, and two sacks, which was easily the most of any lineman on the team. Ian Williams had five hurries. Uh, no one else cracked three and a half. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Aaron Lynch, who had 34 hurries, and Ahmad Brooks, who had 15 and a half. So it, Eric Armstead, as a rookie, was already causing as many hurries as Ahmad Brooks. He just couldn't close the deal as often uh, as Ahmad Brooks could. And, and so yeah, I think... And on a per snap basis, right? Like he was probably, he didn't yeah. get the snaps that some of those other dudes got, but per snap basis, he was probably the second best pass rusher behind Lynch last season. Eric Armstead got 375 snaps last year and Ahmad Brooks got 744. And right. they had only one and a half hurry difference. Uh, and Eric Armstead had seven hits, whereas Ahmad Brooks had four. So Eric Armstead already has some pass rushing chops. And Buckner is supposedly the better prospect, so that'll be that'll be interesting to see how that develops, and I'm I'm excited to see that defensive line. Absolutely, I mean that's I, I think maybe right behind just because of like you know the Chip Kelly nerddom that that we both have. Uh, right below that on the things that I'm I'm kind of excited to see this season is going to be how those two guys play. And then finally, Navarro Bowman gets a contract extension. We signed him to a four year extension to an existing deal which we'll talk about that in a minute, but he already had three years on his deal. We extended him four, which means it's a seven-year total deal. We'll have him through his age 34 season, uh, which I think is out to like 2023 or something like that. And it's or maybe, yeah, it's something like that. It's it's a ways away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, twenty. Yeah, right. I think twenty twenty three. Seventeen, right? eighteen, nineteen, twenty two, one, two, two. Yep, twenty twenty three. I just counted on my fingers because numbers are hard. Yep, okay. they sure are. Unless they're written down here on our little outline. Uh, <laughs> so he has. He was before he signed the extension. He was fourth in per year average salary. Now he is second behind only Luke Keekley. He's also second in total guaranteed money uh, behind Luke Keekley with twenty two million guaranteed. Luke Keekley got twenty seven. Brian Cushing comes in third at 21 million guaranteed. So this is this was a little odd because this wasn't like a oh you've got one or two years left on your deal let's go ahead and extend it. He had three full years left on his deal. He just signed his new deal a couple of years ago, and one of those years he was out due to injury. So this kind of perked up some ears in the NFL because now agents have a bit of precedent to say, well, you don't have to wait until year two or three to extend. You can extend now. And, and so it's, it's going to have some potential ripples across the NFL. But for, for Navarro Bowman, at the very least, it gives him a bit of security with his reconstructed knee. Yeah, I think there's, there's kind of a few big takeaways there, right? Like one, from the 49ers perspective, obviously this you know, could potentially be somewhat of a buy-low situation for them because you have the season where he missed due to injury, the season immediately back from that, he wasn't quite to his same form yet. So you don't have you know, quite that all-pro pl- all level of play, essentially, that you would uh, you know, potentially need to pay him at in a, in a future contract if you wait. So if, if the knee recovers as they seem to expect that it will, right? It, it tells you that they feel pretty good about the state of his knee and, and where he's going to be going over the next couple of seasons. Um, so it, it, it's, they, they potentially get a steal, right? Like this contract two or three years from now is, has a good chance of looking, you know, really, really great from a team perspective. So uh, you have that. It also allows them to put some money. Uh, like I would we haven't seen the exact structure of the deal yet or, or kind of like, how the bonuses are spread out or any of that sort of thing. But 
I would imagine, given the massive amounts of cap space that they have right now and, and are projected to have in the next year or two, that this is a pretty like front-loaded contract where they're going to be able to put a lot of the guaranteed money in the first few years. Um, and given how the 49ers operate, I mean, we can pretty safely assume that this has kind of some year-to-year rolling sort of guarantees built in, similar to what we saw with the Colin Kaepernick deal, because that's just kind of how they they do business at this point. So um, even though we don't have those details yet, like it, it seems like a pretty safe assumption. Um, so yeah, they get they get a lot of that cap space to, to eat up, you know, kind of the guaranteed money up front. And then really at that point, like with any NFL contract, the likelihood that they see the end of it is always pretty low. When it's a seven-year deal, I mean, at the very least, those final two years are likely to have no guaranteed money in them whatsoever because your signing bonus guarantees can only be spread over five years. So the likelihood of them having some sort of guarantees in that sixth and seventh year seem really, really low to me. Um, so, I, I, I mean, it, it gives them flexibility. Like, if he wants to stay there that long and he's still producing that long, like, he's going to retire a Niner, right? Like, that's going to pretty much cover all of his productive seasons left in the NFL if they want it to. But if he declines, I think, sooner than maybe expected or, you know, before then, I don't think they're going to be stuck paying him a lot of money on the tail end of that deal if he chooses to either A, retire early, or B, they need to get rid of him before then. And ultimately, what this means, you know, and this is, I think, what matters to, to fans most is that you can buy a Navarro Bowman jersey and not worry about that person not being on the team next year. Now, that's really what it boils down to is, is just, you know what? I can't. I mean, you say that, but Colin Kaepernick, you would have said the same thing after that deal because guess what? Guess who bought a Colin Kaepernick jersey after that deal? This guy. Yeah, me too. And I bought one in black too. I was expecting that. (laughs) I was expecting to ride that double train, like not just the cap train, but like the black jersey train. And now we're gonna wear. And now we're gonna wear these gold jerseys for this color rush game that we've got on Thursday. Uh, I'm just like, don't remind me. Uh, Oh Jesus, Um, we're gonna look like a bunch of bottles of mustard out there. True story. I used to, when I played Pop Warner football as a kid, I played for the Mountain View Marauders and our colors were red, yellow, and white. And we, we used to make fun. We used to get made fun of and make fun of ourselves. And we used to say that we were like the ketchup mayonnaise mustard team. And (laughs) one year I, I, I played junior midgets and we got brand new jerseys and we were super stoked. And our jerseys were typically white and red. And like what primary color, red primary color, white, white was away and, and red was, yeah. was home. And we got gold jerseys as our primary color. Didn't look good then. Uh, ain't going to look good now. I've done it. I speak worst. from experience. Don't <laughs> go with a gold jersey. It's terrible. I just don't see how anybody could look at it. it, it, it all, not even just, we're not even talking just gold jerseys at this point. It's a completely gold uniform. Uh, it's going to be hideous. It's going to look like a bunch of little trophies running out there on the field. Yeah. Like a bunch of little trophy people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's get to the mailbag then because we've got a lot of really good questions on this week's episode. It's training camp. You've got questions. We hopefully have answers. And there are some actually some really good questions in here and some really good questions that are going to be uh, some more fun questions near the bottom. What we've tried to do is, is chunk these into themes because there's a couple of things I think on 49ers fans' minds that are percolating to the top. And those are the three things that we're going to hit right at the top of the mailbag. Um, quarterbacks, wide receivers, and Trent Balky. But first, right off the top, I think... There is one question which David and I find super important that will help contextualize a lot of what we're talking about and will talk about over the next probably half an hour or so. 
And that's going to be from Craig Bainbridge. And he asks, how much should we read into the reports coming out from camp? Is it all fluff or are there some nuggets in there that will point to some version of the truth for the upcoming season? And we thought this question at the top was timely and important because you are going to get a lot of camp reports. You're going to get a lot of information. And sometimes it's difficult to pull out what is real or and what is tangible or what is just something that's kind of you know effervescent that you shouldn't pay attention to that's going to float away. Yeah, so I think at least for for me personally, the the things that I sort of try to pay attention to uh, have less to do with performance, actually. So it, to me, if it, if a guy is getting a lot of attention for you know having a really good practice or, or making a big play or, or doing something like that, like I, I don't really care. Like it it just doesn't really matter that much in this context, or at least in a sense to where we can we can take that good performance from a training camp practice and be able to say, okay, this translates to being good in either the preseason or then eventually the regular season. Like uh, there's so many cases that go either direction there, right? Where there is a player that kind of comes out of nowhere during training camp and ends up having an impact during the season. But there are just as many, if not more of those players that look good during camp and then are nowhere to be found come the regular season. So I just don't spend a lot of time putting much stock into those performance aspects of it. But I think one of the things that that really does matter and that it's hard for coaches to kind of uh, really hide this in any way from the media is the number of, of reps that they get, right? Because even with a, a, a coach like Chip Kelly that runs very fast-paced practices and probably gets more practice reps for his players than any other team in, in the league, um, there's still a limited number of those things, right? You can only practice for a certain length of time. You only have a certain number of reps to go around. So the coaches are going to give those reps to the players that they feel like are going to have you know, an impact in the upcoming season. So I think when you look at those, if, if, if you get reports that, okay, this offensive line combination now for this week of training camp practices is going out there as the number one, like we can feel pretty good that that's uh, at least the front running group for the number one come the regular season, right? So those are the, the sort of things that I kind of pay more attention to. Yeah, and I think limited snaps is an important thing to keep in mind here because I thought it was interesting when Chip Kelly talked about the quarterback split. He said there were going to be 12 snaps for Cap and 12 snaps for Gabbert. Most people jumped on the fact that this was a you know 50-50 competition and both were going to start even. What jumped out to me was the fact that in the first practice, the quarterbacks were only going to get 24 total snaps of practice. Like e- yeah. even Even in a fast pace, and we mentioned this on the building a game plan episode where Brian Billick talks about how you structure your practices and and what you can actually practice and put into your game plan is largely dependent on time. You can't put more hours in a day. You can't, you you could try to practice more often, but you know, there, there are NFLPA rules against that. So you really are constrained by time. And so this is why it's difficult for a second or third string quarterback to get a lot of reps this is why Jared Hayne ended up quitting because there's no real developmental league because that's what the NCAA is there for. That's what college football is there for, right? And he can't really go back to college to play football, so <laughs> he doesn't really have a developmental league that he can go and get practice in. I mean, I would say the CFL or the Arena League, but whatever. I'm not going to quibble. So <laughs> I, I think it's important to, to note that snap counts are probably more important here. Don't look at, don't look too too far into the this person's performing, that person's performing, because you don't know who they're performing against. 
They could be performing well against, you know, second, third team players, players that aren't going to be there, players that are going to be on practice squads. So I think, that, you know, that there's no hard and fast rule necessarily. Like it's not all necessarily nuggets. It's not all necessarily fluff. But the, the, the through line that I think you can, you can pay attention to, Craig, really is practice reps. Yeah, and I think the the last kind of thing with with performance there is really looking at what the purpose of those plays are, right, in practice. So, like, we can assume that when they're in a game, everything that they're doing from a player standpoint, from a play-calling standpoint, is with the ideal outcome in mind that this is going to help them win the game, right? When it comes to practice and even preseason reps, like, that's not always the case. Like, sometimes they're they're running things, like, just to get them experience with a particular concept or to see how a player responds or, or executes a particular concept. So there are a lot of other things that they might have as kind of that ideal end state when they're doing things in practice that don't align with how things work in the game. So if I'm hearing you correctly, David, what you're saying is that practice is like practice. where you, I mean, it's crazy, right? Where you're trying things out because you want to get better at them, and that means that you're not necessarily perfect at them. But that through repetition in these, if you will, practices, <laughs> that you then get better so that when game time comes, you can actually execute to a high degree of proficiency. I mean, I don't know. That sounds like crazy talk to me. I mean, we're, we're basically we're out here talking about practice. Talking about practice. Not a game. Not a game. Not a Not game. Not a game. <laughs> practice. <laughs> I'm practice. never not going to stop doing that. I'm never, never. Not it never gets old. I don't no. care. We, there's, there's a company at work called um, Loblaw. That, that's the name. It's a Canadian company, I think. <laughs> like and, Bob Loblaw? Yeah. Every single time at work, someone's like, hey, did you, uh, did you get that request from Loblaw? And I go, Bob Loblaw's Loblaw? Like, it just, it's autonomic. I just can't not do it. <laughs> the uh, the Wi-Fi network at our house in Austin was the law offices of Bob Loblaw. <laughs> I think that's a solid name, solid name. So I think, Craig, thanks for that question, because right off the top, it definitely helps frame some of the discussion in terms of camp reports that we're going to get. Because the next big question area that we got from fans, we got it from Jacob, we got it from Stefan. Actually, I'm going to call you Stefan because it's S-T-P-H-A-N. I think it's really the only way. Uh, and Sean and several others were really about the quarterback battle and the quarterback uh, you know, in camp, uh, how they're performing. So let's first start with a question from Jacob Lundin. And he says, if Cap and Gabbert continue to practice like they have been, uh, i.e. not really separating from each other, who starts the season? Uh, David, I'm going to let you go because I'm going to get some more whiskey and hopefully you can vamp. <laughs> um, so I would say if we, we continue that, that line of thinking into they continue not to separate themselves in the preseason as well. So like, you know, all the training camp practices, everything they're doing there. And then we see similar performances come to actual preseason games. Um, at that point, I mean, it seems like Gabbert probably has the edge. Uh, that's not necessarily like the route that I would go if I were making that decision. But for whatever reason, like the through the front office and, and also this coaching staff seems to kind of have a thing for Gabbard and, and reviving his career. And so he seems to have a, a slight edge if all of like other things are equal. Um, but I, I really think the preseason games are going to be, a, have a bigger determination there. Like, so if things stay pretty consistent over the course of training camp and in all the practice sessions, um, chances are that somebody's going to kind of perform a little bit better during those games. And that's going to kind of 
serve as the, the, the tiebreaker effectively. So that's kind of the way that I, I still think that, you know, barring him just being a complete disaster and kind of continuing down the path that he did in 2015, that Kaepernick to me still is the, the better option given, given the two choices that we have right now. Yeah. I, I didn't hear your entire answer because you know, whiskey, but, uh, if I were if I were to catch the tail end and extrapolate, basically you're saying that if we keep hearing the reports in practice, that's one thing. But that preseason games are probably going to matter more. That sound about right? Yeah, they're, they're, they're going to be the the tiebreaker effectively. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the case too. I think if both, I'm actually going to take a bit of a contrarian stance here, and I say if if both quarterbacks end up even and they don't have a kind of there's not a a clear winner. Um, I think you can take the the cheaper option, if you will, uh, and just say Gabbert's a couple million, and maybe this season, you know, maybe we cut cap or whatever, cut bait, and then you've got uh, Yo Gabba Gabbert there for uh, a lesser salary than you would um, Colin Kaepernick. I don't think that's the move because I think Cap's contract is still very team friendly. If he's producing, he gets paid fourteen, fifteen, eighteen million. If he's not producing, then whatever. But but yeah, I, I, that's. I even I couldn't even be the contrarian long enough to convince myself. So I, I think in, in in a perfect world, I think it's still it's still Cap. Um, but we've got some more questions, right? It's how good of a season does either Cap or Gabbert need to have to be perceived as the team's long term option? And this comes from Stefan Olson uh, on Twitter at LGK Swolson. Uh, <laughs> Swolson. <laughs> Sorry, this is going to kick off a string of uh, you know if you've been longtime listeners of the Better Rivals podcast, you know that we are. We, we pride ourselves. As a matter of fact, one of the skills that we put on our resume is, is name pronunciation. I mean, from the halls of Eric Pierce pairs to... Uh, I think I still pronounce that one differently nearly every time I say yeah, it. Yeah, Eric Pears, I, Eric so Pears. I'm so confused from the original uh, Pierce pairs yeah. debacle. Um, I mean, you know, the, to Joshua Garnett, Joshua Garnett, I, I can't even do it wrong now. I don't know if we ever had an issue with that one, but... It, it's it's you know we're gonna mess up these Twitter handles. We're probably gonna mess up your names. We apologize profusely. Moving on. So, how good of a season does either Cap or Gabbert need to have uh, to be perceived as the team's long term option, David? Um, I mean, I guess it depends. Like, what what you're, are you looking for for stat line there? I mean, really, to me, um, we we would need to see pretty significant improvement over the performance that we saw from them last season, right? Like. Um, we need to be competitive offensively. Like we need to actually be able to just kind of stick in games. We need to be able to, to come up in key situations like on third downs in the red zone and, and show that also with via the play calling that the coaches have trust in the, that whoever that quarterback is, right? We, we talked about last year a lot, how on third downs, it was really a sign, especially with Gabbard about how the the coaching staff just didn't trust him to do the job on third down because so often the option that he was throwing to was very short of the sticks or behind the line of scrimmage or just wasn't really giving the team an opportunity to convert in those situations. So, I I mean, I think it would have to be a pretty dramatic departure from the performance from last year to to immediately kind of reinstate in Cap's uh, case or to instate uh, with Gabbard as the long-term guy, right? Where we don't have to really worry about that quarterback position again. I don't really see 
a realistic scenario in which that happens. Like if, if all of a sudden we're coming out of the 2016 season and we're saying that either one of these guys uh, is kind of the long-term guy and we can move on from having to worry about getting a quarterback in the draft, like some crazy, crazy shit has happened over the course of that season. I'm going to try and put a, a finer point on it. And I'm going to say that if you have one of these quarterbacks with a QBR in the 58 to 62 range, that's probably things going really, really well. And, and I use QBR intentionally because QBR does take running into account in a more real way than passing does. And I think because of the zone read elements that are in Chip Kelly's offense, that that is and can be a valuable part of the quarterback that makes this system go. So I choose that number specifically, not because I think QBR is inherently a better metric. I, I do think it's a little better than than quarterback rating, but for different reasons. Um, but I, I do think that once you start getting into that 58 to 62 kind of almost Pro Bowl level for a season, then you can say, okay, there's something to really build off of here. And maybe you don't settle the score forever and say this is going to be our long-term option forever, but you can say we've got a really good season to build off of, and if that quarterback is cap, then you can start to maybe think that last season was an aberration. Now that you've got three out of four and a half seasons that are positive as opposed to negative, uh, that you can say maybe there are things that are trending up for the future. Yeah, I mean, so just for for so for me, even getting to that range, while that would certainly be an improvement, right? Because if you look at, you know, pulling it up from last year, both Gabbert and Kaepernick QBR-wise were uh, in the 40s, like 42 for Gabbert, uh, 47 for Kaepernick. So even getting up to like around 60, like barely gets them to like the league average sort of of mark for QBR, um, which again would be great. And I think that would be a sign that um, okay, we don't necessarily need to cut bait right away, but having that sort of season wouldn't give me confidence that, okay, we have our answer for the long term, right? It would be, um, we still, like, it, that wouldn't really change my opinion if they end up with a bad record and are uh, picking at the top of the draft again. Like, I would still think that if a, a top tier quarterback is there, that that shouldn't deter them from making that pick, right? It would have to be, like, I think really it would be you have to have a, some sort of season where they end up in the playoffs and, you know, one of those guys is performing very, very well, like among the better quarterbacks in the league for a season. Well, I'm going to go ahead and blame ESPN here for a second because I'm looking at their QBR description and it says a Pro Bowl performance is somewhere in 65 or 70. So I was choosing 58 to 62 to like purposefully go just below Pro Bowl level, like not uh, okay, ne- not okay. necessarily make the Pro Bowl, but... But just like ha- be in the conversation to be in the Pro Bowl, uh, and and so if if league average then is what is sixty two, yeah, somewhere. The, so you look at guys ranked uh, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen range, which is like Mariota, Cutler, Manning, like they're hovering right around sixty, sixty one. Um, yeah, and so then, that's kind of then I would say then then it would have to be what, when do you start getting into Pro Bowl quarterbacks like sixty six, sixty seven. So what, 66 quarterbacks make the Pro Bowl, right? Is that still yep. how we do it? I haven't paid attention to the Pro Bowl in so long. Uh, so really that would get it. you top top six is 70, is, is all 70 and up. So okay. uh, kind of that bottom half of the top 10, essentially, is like uh, mid to upper 60s. Okay, so then, yeah, so then let's go ahead and say, I'll go ahead and, and rewind, revise, and say, let's go with like 68. 
Yeah, so I, I think that, and I think the point that you made about if that player is Kaepernick, that holds a little bit more weight for me, right? Because when we start to, anytime we're projecting forward, we always want to include some of that past data, right? It's not always uh, everything, and, and that past performance doesn't guarantee it, but it does matter. And so the fact that Kaepernick at least has some evidence in his past that he can perform at a high level um I think gives him if he all of a sudden he gets back to that level there's a little bit more reason to believe that he can continue that whereas with Gabbert he's been awful forever and so one good season still wouldn't really change my opinion that drastically then finally in this area we've got one more question from Sean Silviera uh he's going to be on Twitter as well at Sean's um Sean CCA is well how I'm going to go ahead and guess that I'm not going to think he's Italian uh but how much stock do you take in training camp interceptions is there a number that is too much? And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that I don't put too much stock in training camp interceptions really at all. I think it's, again, practice. Quarterbacks are trying new things. They're trying to get their timing. They're trying to figure out if they need to zip the ball in or put a little touch on it. They're trying to figure these things out in practice. And that means that sometimes they're going to throw interceptions because they're trying something new. They're trying a different ball placement. They're trying to hit a different route. And I would rather them take those interceptions in practice. I would rather them have 90 interceptions in practice than have 90 interceptions in a real game. So I think in this regard, it's probably, you know, preseason interceptions might worry me a bit more than training camp practice interceptions. But even then, I I still consider, you know, glorified practice to be a preseason game so i wouldn't put too much stock in them and and i would not chart plays in practice yeah a little to none i mean pretty much whenever i see like those qb stats from a a practice of any sort i kind of just laugh to myself i mean especially if they're bad like if if, which the 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 cam inman uh tweet from today i think it was that that had gabbert and uh kaepernick's numbers from the practice was i mean it wasn't good obviously but Still, like that doesn't change my opinion or sway it one way or another. Um, yeah, I think the the thing that I always kind of come back to with that is uh, something that I came across when I was like doing the Kaepernick art- article for the Fortnite's Almanac last year, which was something that Aaron Rodgers said. And essentially, and you kind of touched on it, um, but it, it's like in practice, I am trying to figure out certain things so that I know what I can and cannot do in the game, right? I'm trying to see, okay, if this receiver is covered this way, and I make a throw to his back shoulder, can he make that adjustment? And if the answer is yes, I know I can make that throw in the game. If it's no, maybe that turns into an interception in practice because that receiver didn't make the adjustment. But now he knows come game time that he can't make that throw to that receiver. So, again, you don't really know what the, the desired end state with these practice reps are compared to the, the actual game environment. So the next big segment of questions that we got were about wide receivers. And we pulled a couple. There were several that came through about the wide receivers. But I think the best one was from Philippa Hill because it was just a general one. Uh, And she asked, what's going on with the wide receiver competition so far? Uh, We had Aaron Wilson ask a question about DeAndre Campbell. uh, Keandra Brodus, again, another name I probably butchered. I'm sorry, Keandra. Uh, What kind of impact do you see Eric Rodgers making this season? All of that goes into what's happening with the wide receivers. And as far as we can tell, it is Torrey Smith and then everyone else. And uh, that's, that's not surprising, nor should you be surprised, I don't think. Um, I think at the end of the day, you're probably going to see someone rise to the top. 
DeAndre Smelter had some pretty good um, slant routes, and that's to be expected. That's one of like the four routes he ran at Georgia Tech, um, <laughs> and and he can run those routes very well. So what's going on with the wide receiver competition so far? Whole lot of nothing, as far as I can tell. No one has kind of risen from the pile of rubble that is the wide receivers that are seem to be like a bunch of fourth round picks that have been collected by Trent Baalke. And and that includes Eric Rogers, who has not really been separating himself, which is, I think, a little disappointing considering he has the most pro experience, perhaps other than uh, some of the fourth round picks that we have already. Yeah, I mean, if you're a regular listener, then you know that we've kind of touched on this uh, quite a bit over the offseason, like what this receiver situation looks like. And, and it really hasn't changed, my opinion, you know, now that training camp started. Essentially, I feel like there are two receivers that I'm confident will have some sort of role come the regular season, and those uh, players are Torrey Smith and Bruce Ellington. Um, now, that, again, doesn't mean that Bruce Ellington, I think, is going to be the, like, quote, number two receiver and is going to get the second most targets and all that. I'm just confident that he will have a role of some sort in this offense. And after that, I mean, it's it's kind of a mess. Like, none of those guys... Uh, I, I think based on just the practice information that we have right now, you can really place ahead of another one. I think it's really going to come down to how they perform uh, in, in the preseason games. And as we see, like as we get further on and throughout camp and, and throughout the offseason, get closer to the regular season time, we should hopefully start to see some separation in the number of reps, right? Getting back to what we do want to pay attention to from this stuff, the number of reps matters. And so hopefully if things go well, some of those players will begin to separate themselves. We'll start to see them get more reps with the kind of the first and second teams there in practice. And those will be the guys that we can start to feel confident about having some sort of a role this season. The next big area of questions that we got was Trent Balky. Uh, and that was really, a, you know, is this a make or break season for Trent Balky from LFC 49er? And we'll go, we'll go through these as a, as quick hitters because we got several on Facebook about Trent Baalke, but let's start right at the top with a question from LFC 49er. David, is this a make or break year for Trent Baalke? No, no, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I guess semi-quick version uh, is I, I just, it's everything that they're doing um, seems to indicate to me that they know that this is somewhat of like a rebuilding season. So I think when, when your actions throughout the entire offseason point to that being the case, it doesn't uh, indicate to me that the team's ready to all of a sudden pull the plug on a guy if things don't go well, right? Like, you're kind of expecting for things not to go great. You want to see some some improvement over what we saw last year because, I mean, one, it's hard to do worse than that, and so you want to see some step forward, but, you know, that step forward can occur and they still win the same number of games or even... You, you could even realistically see them be a better team on like a play-by-play basis and win four games due to schedule or other like random things that are kind of out of their control. Um, so, so there's not really a win total for me. I think maybe the only thing that would uh, kind of cause him to lose his job is if things just tank even worse for some reason. Like they win two games, one game, and, and they're just completely awful and not competitive at, at all in any of these games, like, that would, would probably do it. But barring that sort of, like, catastrophic outcome to the season, like, I don't think this has any impact on his tenure at all. And that leads us to another question from Jeff. How many wins will the Niners have to have for Trent Balky to keep his job? I think two was the magic number here. 
Um, it, yeah. Really, it's it's not. It, even if they get the first pick in the draft, I don't think he's losing his job. Chris Cuban asks, now that Tom Gamble is this, is the assistant GM, how many seasons is Balky guaranteed before he gets the boot? And is Gamble even an upgrade over Balky? So Balky is actually the person who wanted Tom Gamble promoted. And, you know, th- this is every good manager and, and outside of, you know, I guess maybe the interactions with Harbaugh, all we know about Trent Balky is that he is good at certain parts of his job. And he's clearly good at identifying at least somewhat some talent because Tom Gamble has been, um, you know, someone that the Philadelphia Eagles wanted. He's close to Chip Kelly. And that's what you do. You promote people who are in your organization who are good so that they can stay because you give them more money, you give them a new title, and you give them more responsibility. And and so at that rate, you think to yourself, it's not really something that the team is doing to put hot water under Balky. It's just Balky being a good manager, which is I'm going to identify good talent, reward my good talent, and make sure that that talent sticks around. So who knows if Gamble is an upgrade over Balky? Um, I think Balky does some things really, really well that can't be easily replaced, most namely um, his valuation of players and the money he gives them as well as getting draft picks, even if his drafting isn't all that great on the offensive side of the ball. So I don't think that there's a number of seasons before Balky gets the boot. I don't think that we have to worry about Gamble being an upgrade over Balky. I think that kind of like with the previous question, it's more about how that team looks. And if we win, you know, three, four, five, six games, but we lose some close games and we lose a bunch of close games and we're not getting blown out, then I think uh, I think we'll be okay. Yeah, I mean, I I agree completely. I, I don't really actually have have much to add to that at all. I mean, I, I think that the uh, gamble promotion doesn't really have any bearing on Balky's tenure. All right, so let's get to everything else. And these are going to be quick hitting questions that we're going to run through as quickly as possible, maybe a minute or two each. So let's get started with one from Alex Runplay, who, by the way, Alex, if you're listening, your question asking game is pretty on point. We're going to have two questions from you. We had, I think, two or three from you last time. This is going to be fun. But number one, if you can switch the entire roster with any other team, which team would you switch with? David, go. Man, that's tough. I should have looked at some other rosters before we did this. Um, I mean, it's 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 really. I think you want like young talent is the idea there. I, I think Seattle still is a really strong contender. Like as as much as that would actually suck having to root for all of those players on Seattle. Um, I think Arizona is also an, another team that while they're old, like at quarterback and and uh, you know a key position or two there, like they still have. Uh, a good amount of young talent. So, I mean, I think that's that's what you want, right? Young talent is what sets you up for future success. And, and I think right now it's hard to argue that Seattle isn't really still in the best position from that standpoint. Yeah, uh, same kind of thing. I think young talent, but specifically young quarterback uh, that is successful. And to me, I mean, not knowing what Jared Goff is going to look like, I would yeah. say my two top teams right now are going to be the Carolina Panthers and the Seattle Seahawks. And and I think, you know, because I hate Seattle as much as I do, I'm going to go ahead and go Carolina, especially because I like their offense. Uh, so mm-hmm. second question from Suki Brar on Twitter. In your opinion, what's the best scenario for Jaquaski Tart's role in the defense? David. Uh, best case scenario is him playing uh, that that sort of hybrid linebacker safety role, which my favorite designation is the one that uh, I've heard Arizona uses, which is the money linebacker. Love that. Um, 
so so I think it's it's that if the reason that would be best case to me is because that indicates that Eric Reed and Antoine Buffet are still playing well at the more traditional safety spots. So now Tart can be kind of freed up to do some more, you know, some, some different things within the defense and kind of move around a little bit, uh, fill some different roles there. I think at least early on, that would be the best use of him. I'm going to go ahead and plus one that answer. David at Kuth DC says, does Chip have any red zone philosophies that might help our dreadful efficiencies, uh, and I presume that means red zone efficiencies, that we had even under Jim Harbaugh. David? Um, there was nothing really specific about the red zone that stood out to me, at least. like I, I didn't study necessarily the red zone uh, separately from the rest of the offense when I was going through and kind of watching all of his tape and, and doing the study there when we were you know talking about his offense more in depth. Um, I, I, to me, red zone is always about uh, a little bit more about execution than scheme because when you start running out of space there, right, you have less real estate to work with. Um, the passing windows get more condensed. So your quarterback has to be more accurate and have to be able to make tighter throws. Like your receivers have to be able to make uh, more contested catches than they do in the middle of the field a lot of times. So I think that execution element, you know, tends to, to play a bigger role in the red zone. Um, and I also think that offenses generally that are good between the 20s right if you have a good offensive philosophy and your system works well between the 20s like that's generally going to carry over when you look at the best red zone offenses typically in in most years those are just mostly a list of the best offenses right so it's i don't think there's a a ton in the red zone that you have to make some dramatic departure from your normal you know offensive philosophy to find success there yeah, so there, I mean, some red zone numbers from the Eagles in 2013 and 2014. We don't have 2015 red zone numbers, but if you look at their numbers in 2014 and 2015, they passed 56 and 55% of the time in the red zone. So they were a pass heavy offense in the red zone, and their run game definitely centered around the inside run. That doesn't sound too different from what their normal offense is to begin with. So Again, I think David's right on the money. You're not going to see probably a huge departure. You're probably just going to see a couple of plays that are built specifically for uh, the red zone that you might not see as often between the 20s. They they got uh, over the last, over 2013 and 2014, uh, they got over half of their total TDs from 12 personnel. That's 21 total TDs. And in 2014, they got uh, most of their TDs out of 11 personnel. So I think it's going to depend on the personnel that we've got, uh, and I think it's going to depend on really how often, how good or how well the offense is, how good the offense is, sorry, not well, uh, in, in between the 20s. So probably nothing that jumps out. If the offense is good, the red zone offense will be good, and if the offense is bad, chances are the red zone offense will be bad. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the next question uh, we have from Red and Gold BR, uh, talking about running backs here. So outside of Hyde, how would you rank the rest of our running backs? And just for reference, we got Mike Davis, Kelvin Taylor, Dewan Harris, Sean Drone, and Kendall Gaskins are the other guys on the roster currently. Yeah, so I would say Carlos Hyde is clearly at the top. After that, I think you have everyone else. And that's, that's a wrap. That's, it's, it's, I mean, I, I don't see, I, I, just, I just, I don't see any really differentiating factor between the rest of the bunch. I think Sean Drone, if you're going to say, you know, who's the best of the worst, 
I think Sean Drone, just because of his experience and the fact that he is a pass catching or has the ability to catch to catch passes out of the backfield. But Calvin Taylor is a bit of an undersized rookie. Sure, he can fit a role, but does that make him a better back than, say, Mike Davis, who can fit a very different role? I don't know. You've got Kendall Gaskins and Dewan Harris, both players that seem to be of the smaller kind of scat bat role. Uh, you know, I just don't see anyone differentiating themselves after Carlos Hyde. Like, legit, if Carlos Hyde gets injured this year, I mean, just I, I don't even know. I don't even know. Yeah, I mean, I think the the hope, right, is, I mean, I would tend to lean a little bit more towards the younger guys like Davis and Taylor, but um, I, I think the idea with having, like, that many backs, right, is that you don't, when you, if you have somebody like Carlos Hyde go down, obviously you're screwed. You know, not many teams have multiple backs of that sort of caliber to go in there. So you're hoping that either via the committee, you're able to kind of reproduce or, like, replace most of that production um, or that somebody kind of steps up, right? We, we saw last year was a perfect example that you can get competent play at the running back position, you know, basically off the street, which is what they got from, uh, from Jones and uh, Harris last year. So it's, if, if Hyde goes down, are they screwed? Yeah, probably. But I, I mean, I think one of these guys will kind of start to emerge right now. Again, like you mentioned, not, not really enough information just yet to, to handicap that right now, but, I think I would hope that the young guys start to separate themselves over the course of the offseason. All right, so moving on, next question. Um, we got one from Tom Hassel. How much do you think the hopefully improved offensive line impacts the offense? I mean, good. <laughs> like, if, if, <laughs> if, if the offensive line is better, then the, the whole offense is going to have time to do the things it needs to do to do well. So improved offensive line play is only going to help the offense be better. My hope personally is that improved offensive line play removes this kind of phantom pressure, uh, David Carr syndrome that Colin Kaepernick seemed to develop over the last year and a half. My hope is that improved offensive line play allows the run game to work, which allows the, the constraint plays that go off of that run game to work which allow the passing game to work via play action, which is where Colin Kaepernick has thrived in the past. So my hope is that really everything starts in the trenches because that's how Trent Baalke likes to build his team. So I do think that it can greatly impact the offense. And my hope is that it actually helps to also correct a slightly broken quarterback. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with offensive line play in the NFL, really the the biggest thing is you have to reach like a certain level of competence right and and once you hit that level yeah it's great if you have the cowboys offensive line right and and everything's awesome but you can w- once you hit that kind of base standard there like you can be okay You're like all, all we're asking for essentially is that carlos hyde doesn't have to start breaking tackles a yard in the backfield right that he can wait until he gets a couple yards beyond the line of scrimmage to start doing that like i wish that wasn't that, a real stat but it totally is he yeah, averaged it, one yard before he met contact i mean it, it's it's just so you're you're asking for this just kind of basic level of performance there and, and once you hit that i think the uh the ceiling for your offense goes up dramatically right like all of a sudden your run game, again, isn't getting blown up in the backfield constantly. In the passing game, you're having uh, your quarterback feel a little bit more comfortable with things, and it can start to get to a point where the quarterback has a little bit more control over the pressure, right, with how he's navigating the pocket and whatnot. So uh, you can you can overcome some some deficiencies once you re- reach that baseline level. So, I mean, I think it can make a pretty significant impact. Uh, the combination of that 
plus the new offensive scheme, um, which should be much improved. Uh, and also with certain elements of that, like helping the offensive line out, right? Like a lot of the run pass option sort of thing helps the offensive line because they're not really pass protecting. So it allows you to potentially get off some pass plays um, without having to worry as much about protecting and, and dealing with pressure. All right. So next question. And we talked about Bruce Miller as a tight end a lot. And we both were of the opinion that Bruce Miller was uh, and had long odds to make the 49ers roster, mostly just because of his physical makeup. He has unusually short arms for a human. And that is not going to help you play tight end really all that well. He did not rank highly in terms of measurables just as, as a person compared to other tight ends in the league, and especially compared to the tight ends that Chip Kelly wants. So the question from Jerry J on Twitter, at Jerry J 1997 David, do you still hold the view that Bruce Miller won't make the final 53? And for reference, this is a position group tight end with Vance McDonald, Garrett Selleck, Blake Bell, Rory Anderson, and Jerron Hamm. Um, again, and this shouldn't really come as a surprise based on a lot of the answers that I've, I've given so far through this, but right now, yes, I do. Just because I don't think there's anything from these training camp practices that we can, uh, take away that is enough to change that position. So right now, until I see him, uh, you know, start to make some receptions down the field, which I forget the exact stat, but it's like, I feel like it was like two or three passes in his entire career has even been targeted on down the field beyond like 10 or 15 yards. Like it's something ridiculous like that. So that wheel route uh, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and the one, one of the two or three was just a wide open pass. So uh, it's, it's hard to really, when you haven't seen a guy do something, it's hard to just say that because he made this position and, Oh, well he made the transition from DN to fullback. So of course he can make this transition. Like it just doesn't work that way to me. So until I see him do it on the field and, and kind of do some of the, the sort of things that you need tight ends to be able to do in Chip Kelly's scheme, um, nothing that happens during these practices is going to change that view for me. Until you see him do it on the field. <laughs> Next question comes from at 49ers Gab, a friend of ours on Twitter, looking at the schedule and opposing D's. How do you think this offense will fare? And I guess we'll try and operationalize that question a little bit. And, and let's go ahead and, and try and put like a ranking in terms of DVOA. Where do you think the final ranking for the 49ers offense will be based on DVOA at the end of the year? So I think even taking into account, uh, you know, some of the schedule stuff, um, I, I do see them improving. So last season for reference, uh, they had the 28th ranked offense by DVOA. Um, and they also played the second most difficult schedule, right? So already had a tough schedule last year. So if you assume even, you know, worst case is that they play a another like top two schedule, which, which certainly isn't out of the question based on what we know right now. Um, I see them kind of improving from that 28 mark for the reasons that we just talked about regarding the offensive line, potentially reaching a, a certain level of confidence and the improvement with the offensive scheme. Like I, I, I see them getting into kind of maybe the, the low 20 range, maybe flirting with the teens. And, and by low 20s, I mean like 21, 22, 23 area. So I, I, I see a, an improvement there. It's not going to be anything drastic. They're not all of a sudden going to be a top half deep offense. Um, but I think there, there is notable improvement there. 
I think for me, it's definitely going to be a, you know, a, a better finish offensively than their rating. I think, honestly, I, even because of their schedule, I don't see them jumping or making huge gains. Like, I don't see them going to, like, 10th or 12th. If they can go from 28th to, like, 17th or 15th even, like, league average almost, I, I think that's probably where they're they're hoping for really i don't think and i think that's probably like best case scenario whether where they will end up i think it'd be difficult for them to get five wins and end up with like a 12th ranked offense unless their defense was absolutely horrid and and i don't think the defense is that bad so I, i think that the offense will probably fare in that you know somewhere between 16 and maybe 22 range 23 range somewhere in there um, which is a pretty wide range, um, but I think that that's kind of best case scenario, or you know, kind of the bottom end of where Chip Kelly's offense can kind of be. Yeah, and and the thing to remember there too, if we're using DVOA, which we certainly prefer to do, is is kind of the measuring stick there. Like that is the D in DVOA is defense adjusted, right? So they they do even if the raw totals aren't necessarily there, and you don't look at at their you know standard NFL rankings and see any sort of improvement over last year. Um, there's still a really good chance that they could see that improvement in DVOA because it is taking into consideration the strength of the defenses that they're playing. So with all of that, that stuff kind of bundled up. Yeah. I, I think uh, a five to 10 spot improvement over that 28th ranking is, is kind of about the limit that I would place on them. And I think that also answers the final question from Marco, which is Marco Pedroso, which says, which side of the ball do you believe will improve the most? I think it'll be chip. And his offense, I think that's what will make the biggest gain uh, over the defense. Not, but I do think the defense is going to be a little better this year as well. Yeah, and again, so the the advantage if we stick with DVOA there is DVOA is going to be more of a per play thing. So if you if you hear those, you know, end of season like NFL ranks, there's a good chance that because of the the higher number of plays that they're certainly going to see this year, um, that the raw totals might approach what they did last year even if the defense is performing better on a play-by-play basis so um i i think with the the defense there i i would actually go a bigger improvement with them because they were ranked last year um almost identical spots so they were 27th their kind of late season run pushed them up from the very bottom of the league last year i i think we could realistically see that defense by dvoa become a top half defense if things break right like i think that's more uh a a more realistic possibility of that happening than the offense doing the same now we get to the fun ones we had like four or five really really fun ones that i thought would be great to do here at the end of the episode so in the last 10 minutes that's what we're gonna do because we like to have fun so number one scott young with the revelation that kelly doesn't drink coffee or caffeine what everyday item do you not partake in so I'm actually really curious as to your answer on this one, because I don't know that I have a great answer here. Um, I have one in mind, but I don't know that it's yeah, I don't know like an everyday item. I mean, know? everyday like, item. I eat breakfast. I drink coffee. I drink copious amounts of coffee, actually. Um, yeah. I have a Chemex uh, pour over that I make every morning for both me and my wife. And by the yep. way, David, I got that gooseneck uh, electric kettle to pour over Dude. so that'll be coming in a couple days and i'm gonna start pouring over here with that gooseneck because controlling it with my bovada tea kettle which just basically <laughs> had like that big old spout 
I'm not about that life, man. I'm not about that Dude, life. I had to like gooseneck like, life. It's great. Just get enough water over to like kind of soak the ground. It was not. It was not. Fun. <laughs> um, let them let them bloom, and it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Yeah, I mean, what do I not? Part- I mean, I Pokemon Go. I'm on the Pokemon Go every day. I'm on Twitter every day. Yeah. I'm on Facebook every day. I'm on Snapchat every day. I don't know what everyday item I don't partake in. So I think if, and that actually reminded me what, so, so if I had to pick something, um, I guess if tobacco use in any way is still considered an everyday item. That for some hasn't people, been like, an everyday item I, since like right, 1991. I mean, again, agree. That's why I didn't bring it up to begin with. But if I'm, if I'm kind of uh, at gunpoint here, having to pick one, like that might be one. I, and I guess, like, hearing you mention, like, I really don't use Facebook anymore, like, almost at all. So that might be one that's a little bit more relevant. Uh, I guess if you're a California listener, the everyday item that I don't partake in is road rage. Uh, definitely don't. Oh, that I do partake in. <laughs> yeah, I don't do that. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm a consume things kind of human. So I, I, I don't know that, uh, that, that I don't partake in anything. Um, yeah, well, well, it is what it is. All right. Uh, if you, actually, if, uh, so those of you in the Twitter sphere, if, if you are listening to this episode, tell us what you don't partake in that is every day because that might spark us to think like, oh, you know yeah. what? I don't, I don't do that either because I think we're just coming up with a lack of ideas right now. So let I mean, us I know. I think that's probably true. Let us know what those things are, and I guess the 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 call to action this episode is going to be hashtag everyday item. So let us know what that is hashtag everyday item, and and let us know some of those things so we can see. Oh, you know what? I do that or I don't do that, and we'll go from there. I guess if if uh, we don't have everyday items that we don't partake in, does that make us uh, hashtag basic bitches? Um, no, I think no? that's a logical leap too far. Although I do love to brunch and I love rosé and I walk my dog on Town Lake like every Sunday doesn't mean that I'm a base. Actually, yeah, it does. So let's go to the next question. Jeff Waldzier Jr. Was episode nine of this season of Game of Thrones the greatest episode in the history of the show? That requires knowing which one episode nine is. So David... I'm trying to speak slowly such that you can Google which one was episode nine of the most recent season of Game of Thrones. I mean, I know what episode is it. Do you know what episode that's referring to? No. The second so, to last one? Yeah. So episode nine was... What? Hold on. The- Spoiler alert. If you're not, if you're Game of Thronesing and you're watching it now and you have been living under a rock... Tune out for about the next, I don't know, five to five minutes, maybe, and then come back. You've been warned. <laughs> so, so episode nine is the Battle of Bastards. Ah, uh, uh, no, is... no. I'm going to go ahead and do a hard no. It was a good episode. It was a good episode. But the Red Wedding is unrivaled, I think, in, in television, both because of its complete surprise and, and for its impact for what I had to do with, with the Game of Thrones. So I would say that while, yes, it was a great episode, in terms of its cinematography, sure, the greatest episode is still The Red Wedding. So, I mean, The Red Wedding was, was, was great. Um, I am actually going to go a different direction, and I'm not going to choose either of those episodes. So I, I think Battle of Bastards was probably 
the best episode in terms of one that was like heavily centered around some sort of like big battle or action sequence. Like I think that was the most well done of any of those type of episodes. Um, but I am going with the episode, uh, which I believe was episode 10 in which we got the big Jon Snow reveal. And I, I think, um, the big reason for me that that was such a, a big episode and I kind of placed that a little bit higher than some of the other great episodes of the series, uh, is because there's a payoff element there that happened with that episode that just wasn't possible in some of those earlier seasons because that was where all the buildup was occurring. So there was just so many things that you got in that episode that were, were paying off uh, and you were getting these reveals of things you've been waiting six years to, to get. Um, and so that just, for me personally, had like a bigger impact. And, and I, I put that episode a little bit ahead of the rest. All right. So next ep- next question from Gary Smith. David, have you bought a winter jacket yet? For those of you that are unaware, we here in Austin don't own winter jackets. We own thin rain shells because it never gets cold here. Uh, don't so, do winter in Austin. Nope, sure don't. Not a thing. Uh, so, David, now that you're in Pittsburgh uh, and you are reaching us via this real in-and-out cellular connection uh, how, <laughs> until you get the interwebs, how uh, have you bought a winter jacket? No. No, I have not. Um it's still warm here. It's still August. I mean, it's it was, so we're we're fine. We're not in danger yet. I'm gonna try to hold off until like I don't know, like October or something like that. And I'm when David does buy a winter jacket, it will be a pea coat. Next question from Alex Runplay. Uh, <laughs> TBD. Does, yeah. Does, so Trump becomes POTUS, President of the United States, and begins the Hunger Games with the NFL. What player would you choose to represent the 49ers district? This is tough because I feel like, so we did definitely have a Hunger Games related question in a previous mailbag that I can't recall like the I exact phrasing. I feel like it was similar. Or, I feel like it was angle. similar. Um, but I do, the one thing I remember is that whatever 49ers angle that that had, Anquan Bolden was the answer. Um, because obviously. Correct. And now he cannot be the answer, which makes things a little bit more difficult. Um you know, I think I'm probably going to go with DeForest Buckner. You know, young guy, a lot of energy, massive dude. So you get all of the benefits of, like, the big strength, but he's still athletic enough to do athlete little person things or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I, that's, that's my pick uh, based on 30 seconds of thinking about the question. Yeah, I think the answer is clear, and I'm actually surprised you didn't get it. It's Navarro Bowman. Navarro Bowman. Yeah. You know, you think of it. But... You think being, you know, 6'7 or 6'9 or whatever the hell tall they are is, is a skill. No, 240, 6'2, and being fast AF. That's a skill. He can dart. I don't know he if he's dodge. fast AF anymore. Well, you know what? He's faster than both you and I, and he's faster than DeForest Buckner. Um, so, you know, he's, he's muscular, and his nickname is Monster. He just seems like the kind of guy who will eat through your neck to get to your heart if he has to, uh, because that's the kind of guy he is. So I think that he is our new Anquan Bolden, and I'm going to go ahead and say Navarro Bowman. Easy. I'm going to go ahead and pay the man. Give him $22 million. <laughs> Give him, doesn't matter. You just signed a contract extension. Do another one. Sign another contract extension right now simply because of the Hunger Games. 
<laughs> I don't know where this is going. Uh, all right, I think this is uh, this is probably our final question here. Yep. Um, also from Jeff, who uh, who did the last game. Clearly of Thrones, has uh, a Game of question. Thrones thing that he likes. But yeah. hey, and knows we've mentioned Game of Thrones several times on the show. We have. We love obviously it. Jeff is a longtime listener. Okay, yep. he knows where our hearts are at. Longtime um, listener, first time questioner. <laughs> How do you think Game of Thrones will end? Oh man! All right, so you've got a couple things to work with here. Again, spoiler alert: if you t- if you waited the requisite five minutes and you tuned back in right now, I'm sorry, tune out again. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, again, you've been warned. So you have the three-headed dragon prophecy, and that's a that's a big deal, right? So I think Danny is clearly one, and she is riding that Drogon train real hard. Now, I think, of course, number two, you think John. Now, one thing you don't know in the show that you know from the book is that John is a warg. He's not as strong of a warg as Bran, but he still has warging tendencies. Uh, and he can, and he could before his dog. He could see through his dog just ever so slightly. He had the the, the wolf dreams, if you will. Yeah. So all, all the Stark children. Did. Yeah, exactly. So now that he, of course, is is half Targaryen, because now we know that R plus L equals J has been confirmed. Well, now you think there's a very clear through line with warging and dragons, so he's got a connection to the dragon. So the question then becomes, who's the third dragon rider? Who's the third person who gets on that dragon? And I, I honestly, I think it's Tyrion. I really think it's Tyrion. And, and, that, and that ultimately means that I think Daenerys kind of consolidates power and ends up winning because Tyrion is now, she, he, he has professed his fealty, his loyalty to Daenerys. And so it's basically them too. And I think they are going to help the Night's Watch against the White Walkers with their dragons because dragons are ultimately the ultimate weapon, I think, against White Walkers. You've got dragon glass. They were made with dragon glass. They can be killed with Valyrian steel, which was infused with dragon fire. I mean, everything is pitting this dragon versus White Walker eventuality. And at the fulcrum of that, I think, is Danny and uh, and John. And, and then you've got this other third dragon rider, and it's it's not Bran, I don't think. It's not... Uh, you know, Arya. Brandon's gonna warg into that dragon. No, I don't. Green dragon. He's a green seer. So, so a couple things. So, uh, so lots, lots, lots there. Lots to get to. So, we'll try to keep this uh, somewhat condensed. I the three headed dragon thing. I do like the Tyrion theory, um, but I also love the idea of Bran because when so when you uh, when you play it out that way with it being Danny, John, and Bran, you get Danny. On Drogon, the Black Dragon, you get John on the White Dragon, who I'm forgetting the name of. I'm forgetting the other two's names, but uh, John on the White one because obviously he's got Ghost White, right? John Snow. Um, in case you missed that reference, John Snow. Yep. Um, and then you get Bran on the Green Dragon because in the I don't know that they make this reference in the show at all, calling him this, but in the the books they anybody that can kind of like have those sort of visions and see the future is referred to as a green seer as well so you get that with the green dragon i think uh, also makes sense but i think one of the things so obviously it seems like we're talking about show ending which i do think will end up being a little bit different than book ending because one of the things that i think is causing george r, r. martin to take so long with the books is because Right now, all of the logical conclusions are kind of all of the ones, all of the type of things that he's tried to avoid throughout the entire series, right? Sticking to kind of the normal uh, tropes that you see in other like fantasy series. So I think he's going to 
like either a not finish the books because he can't think of anything or b like try to change the ending at all but i think with the show like they seem based on uh this last season like just saying fuck it we're gonna go with you know what the fans kind of want to see and and really stick with a lot of these theories so yeah i think ultimately it comes down to danny getting over there joining up with john and they go take on the white walkers and and do the thing and that's kind of you know where we leave off with uh with the show but uh, it will be interesting to see like how the dragon thing plays out as yep. all of that's happening for sure. So in case you were wondering, the other dragon names were Viserion and Rhaegal. So which one's which though? Uh, does it tell you which, which ones? No, I'm looking at the, uh, the wiki and I don't know which is which I think. No, that's the black one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, wait, hold yeah, on. Could... Hold on. Rhaegal. Oh, oh. Drogon, which was named after Khal Drogo, is black with right. red markings. Right. Rhaegal, named after Rhaegar Targaryen, is green with bronze markings. Uh, okay. And Viserion, named after Vis- Viserys Targaryen, is creamy white with gold markings. That's right. Also funny that um, that uh, if that if your theory is true and 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 John takes over Viserion, who's the creamy white with gold markings. That he takes over the dragon named after an absolute, not bastard, perhaps like legally, but just a bastard in the way that he acted, which was just. <laughs> yeah, that was a terrible person. Yeah, he is a terrible human being. One of the more satisfying deaths on that series. Yeah, getting a pot of gold <laughs> dropped over your head and melting your face. Yeah, that's that's pretty real, good. real good. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So that about does it for this week's episode of the Better Rivals podcast. Let me go ahead and throw this outro music on. Because we can and because it's absolutely amazing. This outro music and intro music was made by Steven Schreffler and Jared Taylor. They are at thebarberysound.com. Check them out. Uh, They've got some really, really good music. And uh, thanks again, folks, for getting that outro music and intro music for us. And thanks to all you that have left iTunes reviews on the iTunes store. They really help other people discover the show. And they really, really help us out. So if you haven't reviewed us already, review us on iTunes and review us on SoundCloud. But that about does um, subscribe. it. Subscribe. Subscribe on iTunes as well. Those subscriptions is really what helps with like the iTunes rankings. So if you're somebody that either is only listening on SoundCloud, only listening through the Niners Nation posts or, or some other uh, you know avenue there to, to get the show, go on, hop, hop over to iTunes, click that subscribe button, and then you can leave it alone forever. Yep. But that, that subscription helps out a lot. Yep. And lastly, I know that this was our first go around in terms of a remote podcast. I'm staring at him on my iPhone. But and while I did dial him in via FaceTime this go around, thank you, Steve Jobs slash Tim Cook. Um, <laughs> next week, we're going to do I, now that David will have Internet um, because he doesn't have Internet. right Fingers, now. fingers crossed, man. I hope yep. you got that data plan, bro. Um, we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and actually record independently on mics and send each other files. So even though we're in separate locations next week, it should very much sound like we are in the same room. So that about does it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. Remember, you can follow David at where can they find you, David, on Twitter's at David Newman with an underscore at the end. At damn egg, uh, and you can always find yep. me at Better Rivals. Uh, so give us a follow on the Twitter. Subscribe on iTunes. Give us a review. And as always, go Niners.
Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.